Welcome to episode 11 of the Haskell Cast. I'm Chris Forno, and my co-host is Alp Mistanagulari. You may know Alp as the original author of Servant. Welcome, Alp. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Austin Seip. Austin has been a GHC contributor since 2013, including being a release manager for a while. I think it was a couple of releases. And he does some uh, system administration for Haskell.org, if I'm not mistaken. He is a consultant at WellTyped and works with Microsoft Research on GHC. You may know him by his online handle, Thought Police. Welcome, Austin. Hey, Chris. How's it going? Alp. I wanted to get right into what I found really interesting about uh, you when I was looking through everything uh, I could find about you online, and that was your background in security. Um, so yeah, I uh, I've had a big I've had a big uh, like fixation on security. It was probably one of the earliest things I got into. Um, you know, sort of doing this is you know about a decade ago or, you know, whatever classical things like, you know, just exploits and stuff like that. And then, uh, I ended up doing a bunch of software engineering and I found Haskell right after that. And that pretty much, you know, consumed all of my focus for a long time. And then I ended up getting a job, um, uh, doing sort of security research a couple of years ago, right before I started working at WellTyped. And, uh, you know, that was a lot of fun. It was a lot of, you know, more of the same. Um, so, you know, I have a big focus on like, you know, system security, application security, secure programming languages and tools, and, you know, how things like Haskell can fit in there, and things like theorem provers and modeling and stuff like that. So um, it's pretty, it's not a big, it's not a big thing people in the Haskell community seem to be really interested in, um, in general. I think that it's kind of a weird skill set. Yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's quite interesting. And it might be something that we're sort of taking for granted, assuming that the compiler can catch all these, you know, sort of typical C style problems. Um, but I'm wondering what kind of security problems you see that Haskell has. Uh, I mean, you know, I think we, I mean, I think we probably have things that, you know, could be filed as, you know, quote unquote CVEs. Like for example, um, you know, people always talk about Haskell performance or, you know, whatever. And aside from that, you know, just to make a joke, but you know, there, there was one bug, for example, uh, a denial of service in read where like, if you try to parse an integer, it would take like, you know, you know, quadratic time or something. So if you have a form that you can talk to, like in a, in a, in a web framework, you know, you can just give like 20 quadrillion or something, right. And it'll just, you know, denial of service, the web application, um, things like sort of, you know, denial of service, like login attacks. I think that, I think that traditional things are probably a lot better, especially if you talk about things like web application security in Haskell, because, you know, a lot of these frameworks try and, you know, you know, be real, be real adamant, you know, about escaping and, you know, CSRF attacks and, you know, all of this kind of, you know, secure session management and, you know, all these sort of things. For me, I think, um, you know, people, it's kind of hard to say, you know, because it's, it, it's kind of hard to know what's out there. It's not really something that people explore a lot. You know, people are just like, I have a type safe language, so it's really nice. And, you know, it's not entirely that. It depends a lot on your threat model, right? Like sort of the domain of, of what kind of attacks you're talking about. And Haskell certainly isn't appropriate for everything when you actually have like, you know, a model that you want to talk about. Yeah, I, I wonder if the sort of 
Haskell ecosystem just hasn't been appealing enough of a target yet for it to really be explored. Yeah, yeah, you know what I mean. Some of our some of our infrastructure, you know, it's just kind of it's just kind of aging there. You know, Hackage still uses you know pretty pretty dated style authentication. It alone could be upgraded to use more you know secure web application practices. Um, you know, some some things you know we we kind of rely you know that people won't like you know do things like you know, spam stuff. It kind of goes for our infrastructure too. You know, Haskell is a community that's operated a lot on good faith, I think, um, for, you know, code reviews and audits and stuff like that. I think, I think most, you know, in, in my experience, you know, looking at sort of client applications, I think most of this stuff would, would fare pretty well. Um, but, you know, yeah, I think, I think it's something that, you know, we should, we should really actually focus a lot more about because if it, if it's good, if, you know, it's good for a lot of things, then we should be able to, to make rational arguments about it, right? But it, it's you sort of see things pop up like that, you know, and it's like, well, you have to think about them, and um, you know, I think I think if we if 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 we're really if we really can be good at this, then you know, we should we should be able to make a coherent argument, but that requires thinking a lot about exactly what we're we're trying to address, you know. You, you did some work with Duncan, uh, I believe, on on hackage security, didn't you? Yeah, so that was all of the uh, package signing stuff, right? Like, how do you how do you securely um, do package management between clients and some kind of server? Uh, that was based on a I. So we originally, when we were going to do it, you know, Duncan and I had talked about it, and I had this sort of basic system in place just to do signing um, of the index tarball, and we ended up finding this much more advanced, uh, well thought out design called the update framework. And it takes care of all kinds of corner cases, like uh, you know, not just not just if someone intercepts your package, right? But other things you don't think about is like, what if someone gives you an old version of the package index, right? What if there was a vulnerability in some old version, and someone you know froze you to an old version? So you need to be able to prevent things like you know being pointed to a, a prior version. So you need sort of a rolling incremental, you know, forward motion um, with you know client sort of a rolling key material. So tough, but its acronym is called. It handles all that, um, and we're it, it. It hasn't fully been turned on in Hackage just yet, uh, but we're hoping to turn it on in sort of the Cabal 2.0 release. I hope, um, and I think you can enable it now if you use Cabal 1.24 or maybe 1.25. I can't remember. Right. So, so it sounds like you're pretty optimistic on the sort of security quality of of Haskell code, at least what you've seen so far and maybe the core um, pieces of it. I, I think that's a relative metric because I think most computer security is utterly, utterly just disgustingly bad. Yeah, so for me, you know, someone who, so just having a lot of good, what seems like solid potential whenever everything, many things seem unfixable, right? Like that's, a, that's enough reason for optimism. And I mean, you know, you have to be kind of optimistic, right? I mean, you've got all this bad software out there, you know, and it's like you sit there and you're like, you know, we can, you can make it more secure. It's like, well, damn, you got to have some level of optimism, you know, if that's how you're going to tackle it. But so do you think that this is more a function of the, I guess, the, the sort of people who've been attracted to the Haskell ecosystem? Or do, do you think that we really are, are seeing that? better languages and abstractions can maybe eventually solve these security problems that the extra complexity brings? Or are we always doomed to, to just have more and more vulnerabilities? Uh, see, that's a, that's a, that's a real, 
that's a real, real big question. You know, the biggest thing that I've taken away is that, you know, just as a pure, like if you want an idea of how, how many bugs you'll have, and this isn't even necessarily security related, but right, it's, it's basically a function of how much code you have. So if you have twice as much code, roughly speaking, in just about anything, you're probably roughly likely as prone to have about two times as many bugs, right? So when you look at the rate that software grows versus the rate at which we can fix it, it looks pretty unfixable. But I think strategically, we have just done very bad. And I think that kind of also, you know, goes for the Haskell community, too. Um, You know, one thing that the industry as a whole does is like sort of remediation rather than like active, real, hardcore mitigation. Um, And I think a lot of that is because in a very bad way, information security is an industry that dog foods itself, right? Like if computers were actually secure, you wouldn't need like a $20 billion a year industry, right? But also, you know, people... You know, I was talking just a minute ago about, you know, we have a lot of potential, but, you know, people always talk about, oh, well, you know, Haskell should secure these things. And, you know, we need to do, you know, and especially in the Haskell community, people have a lot of fascination with dependent types and, you know, theorem proving and stuff like that. And that is completely, you know, absolutely, you know, not, you know, interesting to me because one problem is, you know, you can't, you can't say we need to wait 50 years for programming language tech to evolve, right? Like we, we also need something now. And if we're sitting here and we're saying, well, you know, if we just let the, you know, tr- you know, shake the branches a little bit, you know, just just see what falls out. Well, you know, what's going to happen is toasters all over the world are going to continue, you know, DDoSing banks and, you know, political opponents and all kinds of stuff. Right. So it's like, you know, it's it's pretty it's a pretty bad response to also say, you know, well, we just need to to wait for this to happen. You know, in the Haskell community, we have this sort of there's a big fixation on, you know, these things where, you know, we can create these these programs that are, you know, super correct and stuff, but that that's a function of difficulty too, right? Like, like when you get into things like, um, you know, just, just as an example, when you get into doing things like, you know, dependently typed Haskell programming sort of out, which I'm sure you're somewhat familiar with, right? The curve, it gets very steep very quickly. So, you know, you, you get, you know, a few, a little bit more benefit, right? But for a substantial complexity game, we can't be asking that of, so much stuff, right? And there's tons of stuff we can't even replace yet. So, you know, can it be fixed? You know, yes, I can, but, you know, on a time frame that can actually help people. And, you know, for me, I think Haskell is just, I think, honestly, if you just look at Haskell as a, not even with all the fancy extra features, I mean, it's a pretty good programming language, all things aside. So, you know, we need to write things like tools, automation, defenses, right? Um, You know, we don't need to worry about, I think, so much about, like, you know, how do we, you know, instill a generation of dependent types and all this stuff? It's like, I, I don't think we need that much work. I think we actually need a surprisingly, a surprisingly more like, you know, just low key focused ideal, right? Of just trying to remediate and mitigate existing things. But given uh, Haskell's uh, approach to programming and, uh, and the strong type system, is there, can you see any, uh, any trick or principle or approach that could help making uh, uh, Haskell code more secure? I mean, of course, we, we don't have the uh, the usual uh, C types of bugs, or we have uh, uh, we have them uh, less than in C. That, that, that really depends on how you look at it, right? I'm actually sure we probably do have plenty of C kinds of bugs, right? How much how much Haskell code is under is you know underlied by byte strings and you know foreign malloc and, you know, you know, array, array hashes, and, you know, so many hash characters and whatever the type name is that you can't even comprehend it, right? So, 
you know, don't, you know, I've, I've definitely seen integer overflows in systems like ByteString before. Like, right, you can go look at the commit logs for libraries like that. I bet you if you go look through Vector, you can fi probably find what you would consider an out-of-bound write somewhere, right? That's, uh, that's about just as bad. But I don't think, you know, we need, to, we need to say, like, you know, Haskell is this language where, you know, we never get anything wrong, right? It's like, actually, you know, just play it off, you know, just, just say, like, you know, yeah, Haskell's a language where we do C-like things sometimes, but... We don't need to do that very much, and it's very, very isolated and, you know, for the most part, pretty controlled. So for the things that we do care about, right, like, like you know, uh, language encoding, language encoding, right? Like, what, what encoding are you talking in, right? UTF-8, UTF-16, what character set, you know, what sort of, you know, things, you know, can you correctly do things even like capitalize a string, right? Uh, a language like Haskell can, you know, just alone from that do a lot with basic types, right? Like, we don't need, you know, we don't need to make this sort of, uh, you know, we, we just need to be realistic about it, right? It's like, you know, we suffer from some of these things, you know, but it's like, for the most part, our language as a, just by design, I think is very amenable to writing, you know, lots of well-secured software. And also it's well designed for writing lots of tools for things we do in the security industry, right? Um, I mean, even things that, you know, uh, you know, information data scraping. Haskell's actually pretty good at that, right? You need to parse all kinds of discrete information and data and then, you know, amalgamate it. Um, you need to do things like write analysis tools, right? Like any kind of, you, people say Haskell is good for compilers. It's also good, of, sort of good for anti-compilers, right? Any kind of syntax or tree traversal. Um, you know, we haven't really got a lot of these tools though. But I don't think, you know, we need to, we need to, we need to, you know, yeah, worry about, you know, do we, do we, or do we not have, you know, sort of some characteristic flaws? Like we probably do, but I think that on the whole, we need to pitch it as, you know, at least this is possible, you know, to get it right here. In a language like C and C++, you know, it fundamentally seems for anyone who is mortal, almost impossible. So uh, speaking of security and tools, uh, I wanted to segue, I saw your talk on crypto. Yeah, and uh, one thing that really struck me in the talk, uh, aside from how fascinating it was, was how nice it looked to deal with sort of bit level data. And I'm wondering if uh, how easy that would be to uh, to apply that to Haskell if if it hasn't been done already. If there's not some uh, library or uh, some extension for it, there's there's nothing quite for it for like Haskell or anything, but I think you could, so there was a good paper written by someone who I believe formulated um, Cryptol, the original one's type system in Agda. I think maybe with sort of, perhaps with something like GHC plugins, you could get pretty far because a big part of, of Cryptol's system is, is really constraint solving because it's really only being polymorphic over the, the like number of bits Right, so it's really just kind of like any other variable, but you know, you need sort of you know these heuristics that talk about like you know the size of a word and you know these operations like you know because you need to do things like calculate the log of something so you know how wide something needs to be and uh, so I think if you had something like a type checker plugin, you could actually probably get a surprisingly good approximation. And actually, um, a thing I've been doing in my spare time, I've actually been not using Haskell for security, but for hardware for writing circuits. And uh, there's the, the Clash compiler. And Clash actually does this to a very good degree. It actually has, you know, a lot of, you, you tend to write circuits, you know, that you want to have uh, be polymorphic sort of over the same size of bits. And then you specialize them to a specific number of bits. 
right? So, you know, and Clash is actually powered by a type checker plugin that does many of these things because you mean you need to do many of the same things in in sort of uh, what you'd call, uh, you know, a hardware def definition language in HDL. So I think that things like this can definitely be done very well in Haskell and in a functional language. And Cryptol and Haskell, you know, there's sort of two good examples of, you know, like you can... You can really write very concise, beautiful, straightforward, even first-order code that's you know substantially clearer than uh, than a lot of competing alternatives. So uh, I think you know, and that that's a good example, right? Like you know, modeling tools. Haskell is you know a great language for for modeling. I have a DSL for building assembly programs for my for my hardware written in Haskell. So I have a, a piece of hardware written in Haskell, an FPGA circuit, and then I have a little DSL also written in Haskell to program it. I realize uh, after asking that question that uh, anyone who hadn't seen uh, or looked at Cryptol or Clash or anything else might be a little bit uh, lost at exactly what we're talking about. Um, so maybe you can just briefly explain what these sort of hardware-related um, DSLs are. So, so Clash is pretty easy to explain, at least. It's essentially, we have Haskell and we compile it to executables. Uh, Clash is just taking GHC and it compiles it to uh, Verilog. Right, and Verilog is a is a language used to describe hardware circuits. It's not software. You can simulate it, sort of like software, but it, it's not software. Right? It actually describes at the end of it when you're done, you know, sort of dealing with it. It describes the actual layout of a of a hardware design. And Cryptol, for people who haven't seen it, you know, it, it's it's this this cryptographic language where you know you use it to formulate. It has you know, and it's sort of designed specifically this, for this to to formulate all of these cryptographic algorithms where we often need to talk about, you know, taking bits of data and slicing them up and putting them back together. And, you know, we need all these sort of inherent notions of, you know, NDNs and, you know, bits and bytes and, you know, being, you know, just like in Haskell, you know, you can be polymorphic over them and stuff like that. And they actually have a sort of a lot of the same principles. Cryptol is actually sort of backed by hardware technology. It uses a lot of the same tools you use in a in a in a flow for for hardware design with something like Verilog, and um, so you know they actually and and you know you you sort of oddly need to need to do a lot of the same things in there right like you often uh, you know a lot of cryptographic algorithms are about you know sort of uh, streaming things or you know continuously working over blocks of data and it turns out it's you know a very similar way to you know uh, the way a lot of hardware processes work. Only you know they're stateful in a in a very different sense. So uh, so you know you kind of see a lot of the same formulations in there, right? I want something polymorphic over the number of bits or however wide it is, right? Or constrained only to a few options, and then I want to instantiate it to a real small circuit, or maybe a real big circuit, or maybe a real small crypto primitive that's you know AES two one twenty eight, and then maybe the bigger one that's you know AES two five six, and you can write all that once. Um, and reuse it multiple times. So Haskell is very good, and Haskell-like languages. Cryptol is one hundred percent, you know, unashamedly Haskell-inspired. Uh, you know, they're they're quite good at formulating these kinds of domain-specific problems like this. Yeah. I, I saw that you authored a, a couple of uh, crypto-related libraries in Haskell as well. Um, so could you could you give us a bit of an overview of uh, the crypto ecosystem in Haskell? Uh, what libraries will be recommended for anyone uh, interested in, uh, well, anyone who needs to 
actually uh, securely transmit data or things like that. Yeah, I think Vincent Hanquez, I hope I got his last name right. I think he's done a lot of great work, honestly, on Kryptonite. Um, and I think Kryptonite is probably the, you know, it's probably the most looked at, most used, most reviewed Haskell library you're going to get. And it was, it's not like it just magically appeared. It seems relatively recent, but it's more the conglomeration of a lot of Vincent's old packages. I've written some more domain-specific packages for, for sort of specific things that we needed um, in particular, the one I'm probably most known for is the the one backing the hackage security in infrastructure, which is the Ed two five five one nine package. Um, that is, I had originally sort of, I had originally kind of done the same thing Vincent did when I originally started writing some of these things, and I had a few more originally where I wanted a bunch of discrete packages that would be you know sort of easily independently tweaked. And then I had, you know, sort of this binding to what's uh, popularly known as the Salt Library that was like you know this one big one. Um, and you know, it had sort of, it, 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 uh, kryptonite, if I remember correctly, is sort of a little bit more polymorphic than my design was. Mine was trying to be just about as simple as it was trying to be sort of a very thin veneer with some type safety over the, uh, sodium library. So it wasn't trying to, to, to do a whole lot or fit a whole lot of use cases outside of that. And the ed25519 library was, you know, bootstrapping thing. You know, we need a minimal, minimal little module in you know, piece of C code to, to transport around so that, you know, people can use it and bootstrap Cabal easily and, and stuff like that. So if you wanted, so, so HSTLS, HSTLS, I think is actually, I've talked to a few people once or twice. It's actually um, been surprisingly robust to some, to some attacks that, uh, you know, people, you know, tend to flare up about. Um, I think, you know, people, people of course always talk about timing attacks and all this other kind of stuff. I think that just as a base design, I think that, um, a lot of Vincent's packages are pretty good and pretty high quality, so I would say you know stick with them. And there's something to be said definitely about just going with what's known, right? Don't rock the boat too much. Don't use a fancy, crazy cryptographic protocol. Just use TLS, right? Use the most used TLS library you can get your hands on. Well, that that brings up an interesting point about um, you know these sort of pure Haskell implementations of a hashing algorithm or, or TLS or something else like that. Coming at this not as a cryptographer, I, I'm a little bit uneasy thinking, you know, at least uh, maybe one of these C libraries have had more eyes looking at it. But I'm interested on your view on it. Yeah, I think, you know, whenever it's one of those things where, you know, people people always, you know, sort of flare. It's one of those things people feel real, real and easy, and they can never really explain why. I think really, to be fair, you know, when people talk about it, they just take, you know, they're just like, oh, well, you know, a garbage collected language, timing attacks, and, you know, and all this other, you know, sort of stuff. And it's like, well, we can, uh, that's not really formalizing the problem well enough to have anything meaningful to digest. Um, you know, you have all these pure Haskell implementations. I mean, you know, yeah, like just as an example, timing attacks. I've never, I've, I don't think I've ever seen a timing attack on like a remote application. You can definitely do them on sort of carefully constructed local attacks. Um, you know, you really have to think about what your actual, like I said, threat model is if you expect that kind of stuff to, to be a concern, right? What sort of power does an attacker have where they're in a position to do things like that? you still need to worry about it, right? Um, sort of modern design principles dictate that, you know, it needs to be constant time. And that's also generally very fast and, and you know, stuff like that. Um, and it's worth pointing out, you know, a lot of these things, you know, haven't been, you know, a lot of newer things especially haven't been shook out. A lot of the things we use on Hackage actually are just, like, you know, even Kryptonite, for example, 
I make it sound really bad. Kryptonite has actually got quite a bit of straightforward C code underlying it, right? Um, and at some level, you can't even trust C compilers. But I actually think C is a really bad language to write crypto in, too, to be honest. Um, I don't really think there's anything much better. I think it's, I just don't think it's very good either. You know, it's sort of, it's sort of hard to evaluate. You know, I wouldn't say, I, I would definitely say you probably have bigger, better things to worry about than some sort of, you know, horrible thing. Maybe I mean, people on an internet forum will be all like, well, I definitely wouldn't have done that. And they'll wag their finger at you, you know, or something like that. Um, you know, I, I, in the long list of things, you know, it's like, is this, is this pure Haskell or is this, you know, some well-vetted C library? That's, that's a concern of mine. It's not like the number one overriding concern if I were to pick something. If you want to pick something like that, you know, you can pick something like libtls or uh, libreSSL, I'm sorry. Um, and, you know, that'll, that'll work good. A lot of the code, like my, my packages, you know, they typically use um, uh, C code, not only because it's faster, but, you know, just, just purely as a stretch of compatibility of making sure everything's correct, right? So, I, so there's a shared source code base that any improvements can be shared to or come from. Right. That's that's one of the reasons I do it more than like, you know, some sense of, oh, well, you know, there'll be no buffer or integer overflows or it's really pure because, you know, it'll it's easy to build. Well, C code's pretty easy to build. Right. Just a matter of distribution. OK, so uh, moving on to a totally different topic, um, I saw that you wrote a tutorial uh, about the configurations problem. And uh, maybe oh geez, so many years ago. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was a uh, long time ago now. Do you do, you, do you, maybe you could give a sort of an overview of what this problem is uh, before we go into the solution? Uh, if I can remember it, okay. okay. So, so the problem is, is you want to thread some kind of configuration around in an implicit way, but you don't really want to use like. You know, using something like reader is a bit cumbersome, and passing it manually is a bit cumbersome. And then, you know, there's the problem of you can use implicit parameters, but that's not really implicit parameters aren't very nice, really. And then there's also sort of a weird problem about you know you can sort of do things like embed things in type class instances, but then you have weird concerns with sharing. So the problem is is how do you safely, efficiently, and correctly always pass around the the same information? whenever you need to, you know, same configuration whenever you need to do some operation, right? Yeah, and I know the, the um, at least previously, one of the most popular options is just uh, an unsafe perform I.O. early on in the execution of the program. Yeah, yeah, that'll definitely work. Yeah, and that's, you know, completely fine in all honesty. <laughs> uh, the, the, sort of, the sort of tutorial I wrote, you know, isn't quite about... It, it uses actually, it technically uses unsafe coerce. So it depends on your point of view of how much better or worse that is than just a global unsafe perform IO. Um, but, you know, yeah. So, so, you know, yeah, one example is unsafe perform IO, but I guess a, a good point against that is you have to qualify it. You also need to be able, you, you do want to be able to, you know, sort of uh, overwrite the configuration in multiple ways, right? So you need to be able to have a global top level value that you may run two computations with different configurations. Um, and, the paper and the thing I wrote the tutorial about, Ed's library reflection, is an attempt to solve that efficiently using the type class mechanism to keep the instance, to keep the information about the configuration bound to the instance. So when you pick an instance, right, some, some instance of a configuration for some program, 
right? And you you run that, then you know it implicitly provides an instance of a type class with that value. And then when you run it with a different one, it you know uses a different value. So this is weird because you're projecting the value into the instance, right? Like the like it's not it's not type selection. You're not it's not which type you've chosen because they all look the same, but it's about what value you pick, right? If I want to if I, my configuration is the number 42, I'm going to run a program and the configuration I need is this number, right? And you run it, then the number 42 is actually picking which instance, right, you'll have. And this is doing this sort of whole complicated type level reflection. My tutorial was actually about the very formulaic, uh, like, direct approach it has when you look at it at the core level, which is really that in Haskell, type instances, when you have a type class, when you have a function overload on the type class, it's actually taking an extra argument. So you can, if you're clever, what this library is doing is, is allowing you to write an instance at runtime. So when I say run my program with configuration 42, it actually creates a type class instance at runtime with the number 42, right, as an instance method, as the sort of value you can get out, and then it runs your program. And uh, then you only need one copy of the value, right? You can provide a different instance uh, at a different call site if you need a different configuration. It doesn't require any sort of super complicated foreign library interfacing, right? It's just a very clean sort of direct consequence of the implementation. And there's actually some work going on to, uh, to uh, implement this more properly in GHC so it does not need unsafe coerce. Uh, can you say a little bit more about this? Uh, I can't remember. I haven't been keeping up with it. Me and Edward tried to, about the time I wrote that tutorial, me and Ed tried to write the bulk of the patch for GHC to do it. This was several years ago. And then we wrote the, we needed two patches and we wrote the first one and we ended up getting it in. And then the second one, it was either way too late. It was like three in the morning whenever we were there, or uh, it, I think we ended up, may have may have ended up dropping on the floor for, for Simon. It's mostly just an implementation detail in case GHC ever radically changes, which I don't think the specific details of what it's leveraging would necessarily anytime soon. But um, uh, it, yeah, it's mostly sort of a more robust, you know, robustness guarantee. It's a very useful library. I actually used it strangely on a crypto, on a crypto, <laughs> on writing a cryptographic algorithm in Haskell, you know, against, you know, what I was saying earlier, because I need to control, uh, I need to control a modulus, right? And that's actually, funnily, the motivating example of the original paper is: what if I need to do modular arithmetic with a user-specified modulus at runtime? And that's very often what you need to do in a, in an algorithm, you know, in something like an elliptic curve, right? You need to do modular arithmetic over some specified thing. But you, you know, the, the for many algorithms, you know, the the mod is irrelevant. It's the same algorithm. It's just a different modulus. You want to write that code once, right? And then write, you know, the instantiations of it to different parameters a bunch of times. And that makes it really easy to write. I, you know, have this whole algorithm of doing all these multiplies and additions and, you know, all this other stuff. And you never see a modulus because it's always implicit in the definition of the type. Um, so it's a very, very useful, useful library, actually. Um, it's a very, like, solid alternative for many cases to something like Reader, actually. So in the use case you, you've just described, uh, so the modulus would appear in the type, but then you want to inject it at runtime uh, with a, a value. And reflection yes. allows you to, uh, uh, it provides you with a scope in which uh, the runtime value will be reflected 
inside types so that you can yeah. use your algorithms there. So, okay. so I have like a number type, right? Like, you know, you, you have an overloaded number that's an instance of num. But then this instance, you know, call it, uh, you know, n or whatever, this number type, you know, you can add and multiply. It's just modular arithmetic or whatever. Just as a, this is a more simplified example. And uh, inside the instance, when you write the num instance, that's where it, it uses mod reflect, right? Which is the way to get the, the value back. And then, you know, you write your program abstracted over a num, and then you can instantiate that num to the one you defined earlier. And then, you know, like an example in a cryptographic algorithm, uh, you may use the same underlying operations, but you may need a, you may use a different curve. And what that amounts to is basically picking a different set of variables. So like a prime number, for example, you need a really big prime number in most of, you know, these algorithms. Well, I may have the same operations I need to run. You know, but I just have a different curve I chose. So it's a different prime and a different set of other things. So, you know, I just pick the modulus to be a different, a different thing at runtime, right? Based on whatever the user chose. And then, you know, if you, and you know, that makes a lot easier than, you know, having to write all this type class machinery for instances, for all these data types and all this other kind of stuff. It comes with its sort of own set of problems, which is that it uses scope type variables and rank in types in this sort of way that you have to end up. <laughs> sort of continuation passing style things sometimes, which kind of makes some things worse and other things better. Um, but, you know, it, it turns out, you know, that was actually, a you know, the, the mod use case is actually perfect for it. I, I honestly don't know if I was to rewrite that code. Um, I may not use it because it, it was more to be a model and have, for the model, using less complicated types is generally to be preferred, right? Like, if it's less efficient or whatever, I don't really care, you know. But, you know, if someone's reading it, I don't want them to need to know about the, the subtleties of rank and typing in Haskell or whatever. You know, that's not the point of why they're reading the thing. So, um, you know, it's, it's obviously not, you know, a completely free lunch, but it's a pretty, it's a pretty useful library. And, you know, yeah, it's useful for, for lots of these different things where, you know, you use something like Reader, not just a mod, you know, um, all kinds of things. Like if, you know, you could, an, another motivating example I was thinking of is I needed a pretty printer, right? Like, well, you need to read a, a conf, something from a configuration to know how to pretty print something. What indentation level do you want, right? You can do something similar, right? Where you write an instance and it uses this reflection technique to get back, you know, information about how to print things. And then you can pretty, pretty them out. And, you know, you get this nice you know, mostly decoupled, you know, sort of, uh, you know, separation of principles. It's, it's pretty nice. So Austin, I see you, uh, when I went through your GitHub, uh, contributions over the last, I don't know, year or so, uh, I saw that you were contributing some rather detailed, uh, pull requests and, and issues to a pretty interesting broad range of projects. So, I'm wondering, first of all, how do you manage to switch contexts like that? Um, I mean, one thing is that, you know, I like, I like toys, you know. Um, one thing I've, t I've sort of been doing, too, is, you know, trying to, to try and, you know, pick up, you know, sort of a different set of skills rather than just, you know, security and, you know, sort of compiler work and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, one thing I've been trying to do more is, you know, electronics and, you know, uh, stuff like FPGAs. Uh, another thing, you know, a lot of it has just been sort of discrete interests that have sort of built over time. You know, like I do a little bit here and a little bit there, and then you know, slowly over the course of time, that builds into the into a sort of, you know, it, it you know, programming skills like that are kind of a, a compound interest, right? Like there's a there's actually a anime 
about uh, a guy who writes, who teaches animation that talks about this. And, you know, if you want to, he, he tells about how to be a good animator and he talks about it and he says, you know, if you want to, if you want to draw better, you need to draw more. And if you want to draw more, you need to draw faster. And if you want to draw faster, you need to draw better, right? So there's these variables of sort of speed and quality that you can control, right? And for me, I've just had a lot of compound in, you know, interest in all these things, right? Security, uh, Haskell. Uh, for example, the FPGA stuff, I would not have been able to approach that, actually, if I had not had a functional programming background. It, uh, because it, it, it gave me a window, a lens for understanding this so much more easily. Um, the same sort of with uh, mathematics. I've been trying to, to bulk up my mathematical skills, and Haskell has been a you know, sort of type theory, a constructive way of viewing mathematics has been very useful for that. I don't, you know, so to go back to the original question, to, to context switch, you know, for me, it's just sort of lots of discrete little things. You know, it's like, oh, yes, you know, I was working on an FPGA thing a while back, and, you know, I know how to do this thing, so I'm just going to take a minute and fix this bug for someone and, you know, contribute that or post this GitHub issue or, you know, do this thing. So it's been, you know, <laughs> part of it is just, uh, you know, maybe maybe easy distraction to want distraction, having lots of toys, you know, that you can play with, you know, you see something fun, you play with it for a little bit, you know, you get, you get the idea, right. Which is the most important thing I think. And then, you know, you can sort of, you know, sort of continue on. Uh, but one of the um, contexts or toys as you would call it is, uh, has been infrastructure for you, right? Did, did I get it right that you uh, help out with the Haskell.org infrastructure? Yes, I do. Um, I'm, I'm one of the main sysadmins. I mean, we, we're sort of all like, I mean, obviously nobody works on it full time. Um, it's just, you know, sort of a ragtag group of people. And uh, one of the things I have been trying to do recently is um, organize with several of the other developers to, to redo our automation infrastructure. And I had originally prototyped some of this in NixOS. Um, but for certain, uh, for certain kinds of like, you know, inertial down to, you know, sort of support and like, you know, things we need reasons we're looking at re-architecting it on something like, uh, you know, like a like a container-based infrastructure. So for the past few months, one of my side projects that I have been, and I unfortunately don't have a lot uh, out there publicly, it's because I'm super lazy and I just embed my API keys and everything everywhere because I'm, you know, terrible. Speaking of security, you know, I'm sure I'm going to push a bunch of stuff to GitHub and then all my accounts are going to be hacked and my bank account's going to be drained. But um, so, uh, so yeah, I've been working on sort of, you know, trying to re-automate a lot of the infrastructure around Haskell.org. And, you know, I mean, that kind of makes sense, too, because, you know, a lot of, first off, I use Linux for a really long time, so I'm very used to fixing my own machines. And then second, uh, you know, administration is a very security-aligned sort of skill you need to have to make sure everything's sort of kosher and, and uh, well-oiled. And, uh, so for, so for right now, you know, I'm hoping to actually have something I can roll out on our own infrastructure soon, not on like my private, you know, terrible virtual machines or whatever, um, that'll actually run part of Haskell.org, like on a better infrastructure. And I hope that'll help us a lot in terms of reliability and, uh, sort of things like failover and stuff like that. Certain things like certain things like we have right now, like where we could just have failovers for some basic things. Like, you know, we could probably have a hackage failover even without too much effort. Yeah, that reminds me of uh, almost like an Erlang-style approach to things, right? Where you um, just can bring up an instance if it dies for some reason without worrying too much about it. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. And right now, you know, they have to, you know, they have to, call, you know, 
call in the steeds or whatever, you know, we have to call in the cavalry and, you know, we have to come in and log into IRC and then like, you know, at everyone and be like, Hey guys, you know, we're all doing this thing. And, you know, then do on it for a few hours and post your logs of what you did. And then, you know, it's like, that was it. You know, it's kind of, it's a bit unfortunate when you have a reaction time that can't any kind of infrastructure that's not super resilient for stuff like that. Yeah. It, it reminds me of the times when, uh, and I'm not pointing any fingers here, but when, certain pieces of the Haskell.org infrastructure were down for a weekend. I think this might have been back in the days where the university administrators couldn't be contacted till Monday morning. Um, or like a Gal, or, you know, we'd have to, someone have to ring Galois or something, you know, so they could reboot the original Hackage one server. Yeah. I remember that too. Yeah. It's, it's almost like a sort of in your face admission that there are, is a real world that you have to interface. And I wonder if it leaves the impression to people that, you know, this is great for numerical compiler type problems, but, but we all live in the real world. I, are we making progress on that end? I mean, you mentioned uh, NixOS, which is try, trying to take a pure approach to things. And uh, are there other tools or approaches? Do you see a light at the end of the tunnel? For things like it, you know, like sort of administration stuff for Haskell.org specifically or just in general? Uh, for infrastructure in general. I think honestly that something like like NixOS has an incredible number of advantages. The And the real reason I pick something like a more containerized system, something like perhaps Flynn or, or Kubernetes or whatever is uh, because, you know, we we have such a scarcity of available labor that it is difficult to uh, like get the things we need in place. So like, you know, one thing for example, is that, you know, none of the automation has the ability to bring up things on rack space. So we have to write all that. So that's a very, very big, you know, time sink. You know, there's many yaks to be shaved in other words, but the actual amount of potential there is utterly incredible. And I far prefer it to pretty much like it doesn't work for some of the really bizarro use cases that some people throw at you, but and it can kind of be made to work if you if you do enough investment. But the ideas are something that are just radically powerful enough that I think that if a few things were solved, it would be it would be you know unbelievable. One thing I have so like an example is one thing with NixOS, you know, is like it's it's a little bit slow. Like the Nix interpreter is kind of slow. You could solve that, and then some of the some of the problems like security patch speed, right? Which I think the which I which I know people are working on right now. Um, and I haven't really, I haven't really tried it. I've been in, I've been in uh, sort of hibernation mode as a NixOS maintainer for for a little while. Um, I mean, I think this, the potential is absolutely fantastic. A lot of these pro- projects, you know, Haskell.org, you know, or infrastructure, you know, things like NixOS, they always suffer from, you know, sort of the, uh, you know, it's like you, you you just barely have enough to scrape by, right? It's like if if we went with this, it's like yeah, we could scrape by on so much, but it's like you know, it's just it's so damn hard. It requires so much work. You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, there's just not enough spread to where, you know, you can just, you have time and effort to, to just throw into it, which is weird because, you know, in, in, we always pride Haskell on its productivity and, you know, all these other things. It's like, well, if it's more productive, shouldn't you be able to find people and shouldn't having less people, you know, really, really, you know, be okay. And it's like, well, it turns out it's not okay because aside from things like decision-making and communication and redundancy, right, are things that a magical programming language and automation tool can't as easily fix. Um, you know, you can, you know, I 
you can sit there and write a whole bunch of NixOS stuff. That doesn't mean anyone else is actually going to be able, you know, I can do it. It doesn't mean anyone else is going to be able to take it over if I like get hit by a bus or something. Right. And uh, so, you know, I think it's, it's kind of weird, but I think that if, you know, NixOS also has perennially just, you know, well-known bad documentation amongst Linux distros. Um, but the potential for things like transactional forward movement, transactional snapshots of your infrastructure, atomic upgrades and rollbacks at any given time, declarative description that scales from like packages to like entire networks. Like that's, that's something highly integrated that I almost want to see. There are almost things I think Nick show I should take even further to their logical conclusion almost like, um, and there are things that, but it would make it harder to use. Yeah. And then there's still that nasty problem of state and what you do with the database. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there are some proposals for how to even fix that, too. I think one of them is, um, you know, for NixOS, we have sort of the concept of containers. But one of the things is, uh, you know, this is sort of independent of the orchestration thing that sits on top. But, you know, you use something like a like a, uh, like a special mount, like a special namespace to, like, mount in its data directory. And then you can just, just yank it out and transport it pretty much like all the other ones work. But nobody's implemented this. For NixOS containers yet, so if you run a database in it, you know, be prepared to you know find that you know 512 character long directory name manually, you know, with a GUID or whatever, so you can go extract your MySQL database or something later. Um, but there, and yeah, people, and you know, then there's also the problems of packages that you know do just do things like stateful things when they don't need to, like try and write into etc and you know try and put a database. I've seen ones that try and put databases to themselves like next to themselves and like user bin stuff like that you know all this kind of really weird stuff as a package maintainer you have to deal with a lot of hostile a surprisingly hostile software where do you think nixops so the nix deployment tool uh, where do you think it stands compared to the alternatives today if you are on aws and you can get away with using it because it's like the premier thing i think google cloud works as well but there are some there's some like ways that you know some interactions that it, it kind of handles weirdly. You can get away with using it because it has like supported features. I think it's honestly awesome um, because because NixOps isn't really doing the very large majority of it. It's you know Nix it's NixOS as your actual machine that where you get the largest amount of benefit. Um, for us, like I said, if I could either just get like enough time to just write a coherent adapter for Rackspace or someone else would do it. It would be amazing. And I would just keep going with the infrastructure I had. If you're on AWS or yeah, probably something like Google cloud and you can use NixOS, then I mean, I think it's, I think it's definitely very, very strongly worth considering. Um, the, I mean, you know, NixOps in my experience when it does work, it, it honestly works really, really well. And uh, you know, it, it doesn't really get very much in your way like for just, you know, remote maintenance. And it does, you know, you know, nice, smart things. It packages everything up locally and sends it so your machines don't have to have any kind of, you know, tools installed. You don't even have to install Nix, like Nix Env on the remote machine. You know, you can package everything up remotely and ship it to it, stuff like that. Um, it's very nice. So how, uh, what, what led you to Haskell? You mentioned you were working in security and then just came across it. Or, or is there a story behind it? No, I mean, I wasn't, I mean, to be clear, like, I wasn't working in security or whatever. I mean, I was, like, I was still in, way early into school at this point. Um, I uh, I mean, I had just done security stuff. You know, I had just, 
this is back in like 2000, you know, five or whatever. So, so computer security was, you know, even worse if you can believe it somehow. So, you know, teenagers like me, you know, were able to, you know, hack the mainframe, you know, surprisingly easily. So, uh, but you know, at one point I had just sort of like, I sort of just, I, I can't even really remember how I stumbled upon it. I think maybe I was in like an IRC channel somewhere and someone mentioned like, Oh yeah, I like that language or whatever, you know? And this is when Haskell, I remember you can probably go onto archive or Wayback machine and uh, look at Haskell.org in like 2006, which is when I started learning Haskell, you know, it's like this horribly ugly, like homepage, you know, with like that, that really great old, like super complicated looking, like dark teal blue and like purple lambda logo i remember that logo so well i love that logo and uh you know i was like huh this is just you know a weird language and i just kind of kept sitting and applying myself and applying myself and then by the time i ended up in uh college i pretty much ended up being the only person who was sort of interested in my department it seemed like in functional programming but i just kind of kept with it and uh you know i started i had one of the things that drew me into it was the theory of programming languages, like actual like programming language theory, like the, you know, describing the syntax and actual notation and semantic to the language concisely with like, you know, natural deduction and logic and all this other stuff. So, you know, because I care a lot about tooling, you know, your programming language is obviously a pretty important tool, right? So being able to have like a, a foundational treatment for it, right? A coherent like w language to speak about those tools is obviously pretty appealing and useful, so I just spent, you know, and I mean, this is, you know, like I said, this is kind of goes back to that compound interest thing. I spent a lot of time looking at this stuff. I'm obviously, I'm not like a super genius. I've just spent an incredible amount of time, you know, just, just reading carefully. And, uh, so, you know, I just, I just kind of kept going at it, you know, in time, you know, I, it, it's basically been like my second programming language. Like I pretty much write C and Haskell and then like script things that's about it like that's about all i've i've ever needed i mean i've written java and c plus plus for work and all this other stuff but that's that's just you know that's ancillary that's not like the main thing so you know it just kind of was just sort of a random happenstance and you know one thing led to another and i'm really liking the theory and the community was really nice and you know welcoming and and awesome and uh so and you know yeah so and then i started contributing to ghc you said earlier it was 2013 i think my first patch actually showed up in 2008 oh wow so, yeah, so, you know, it's actually been, it had actually been quite a while. That was actually, unsurprisingly, in the C code of the RTS, not the Haskell code, because I was more comfortable with C. Uh, another maybe odd question for you. I, I saw on your Twitter banner some 170-plus core system with oh, all yeah. the CPUs maxed yeah. out. What's the, what's the story behind that? That is not, I will spoil it, is not Haskell. I'm pretty sure... <laughs> I was doing something security related actually, and I needed to compile LLVM. <laughs> and it turns out it has a parallel enough build system where it will it will compile as many object files as in parallel as you can give it. It turns out. Um, it turns out that at 176 or 172 concurrent uh, like compilation steps. You often run into about like twenty concurrent link steps at once, which just ends up taking all your memory all the time. So I, so I could never actually like I would I managed to get that screenshot just from like letting the build only progress like ten percent of the way in because otherwise it would die from out of memory like a machine with like sixty four gigs of RAM because it tries to link like fourteen executables at once. So uh, yeah, unfortunately a bit of a spoiler, a lot more boring than you know you'd think, but I do think it was pretty funny. You know, so many cores, and then each core can only have really like maybe like 
350 megabytes of RAM, like, you know, all things put together. So, yeah, it was kind of a weird imbalance. That was um, that was the machine we used to port GHC to um, to uh, Power 8, actually, which is sort of like the latest run of, you know, the PowerPC line from IBM. They're, like, super high-end, uh, you know, open sort of architecture. And uh, we, we'd had, like, a PPC 32-bit backend, and, and someone came along, and they wrote a 64-bit backend in GHC 8.0. And uh, so we used that machine for them. We got it. It was a real nice donation from someone uh, from this uh, from this uh, hosting provider. So you know that was that was a lot of it was a lot of fun to play with while it lasted, and you know a lot of fun to develop and compile on. Yeah, uh, I would like to talk a bit about uh, your time as a GHC maintainer. Yeah. Um, given that you were uh, uh, orchestrating everything, uh, how much time could you dedicate to actually contributing? What what proportion of the time would you spend uh, handling contributions versus uh, actually working on some problem or a patch yourself? It it kind of varied. Whenever I first started, I was really the only. Uh, I had came in after Ian, and we were sort of still using you know these mechanisms like using track for patch management and stuff. So a lot of my time was actually surprisingly at that point spent on development because I would be spending time. I mean, it, it's kind of hazy because you know. Um, <laughs> You you know you have to do everything from triage tickets to fix bugs to support users to you know on IRC and the bug tracker to actually write patches. So the way it kind of happened was is you know I was doing all this stuff you know working working and then I never was like okay this stuff isn't going to scale like if we want more contributors right like working on track patches and all this other stuff so we ended up setting up Fabricator and after Fabricator um, happened like I mean there was like a massive explosion of regular developers. I mean, I think uh, Thomas, uh, Thomas Tomey, as many people know him, did some stats. And I think, like, I started working on GHC in the year 2013. And, I mean, it was something like, you know, it you know, it was like an eight times increase or something in the amount of regular contributors, like, by the end of the next year or something. Like, it was, like, from, you know, less than, like, 10 to something like 30. And, uh, you know, from people just regular. And, you know, just the number of people in total that we got patches from dramatically increased. So at that point, then you spend a lot of your time reviewing code. Um, and you just spend a lot of your time just trying to figure out who should do what. Like, because it has to go somewhere. So, like, someone needs to figure out where it goes. And if it has no authority otherwise or nobody else is willing to pick it up, then you have to do it. And that's on top of all the other stuff. So it's like, you know, at a certain point, actually, once you... And that, that makes sense, right? Like, if you're... if if it's only a couple people, right, you actually don't have that much, like, friction, like, all things aside. Like, right, you can sort of just do things and do things. And then suddenly when you have a lot of people, you suddenly have a lot more, you know, you have a lot more bandwidth. But, like, you know, as someone who's organizing things, you know, your your ability to, to like, focus on a lot of things diminishes, right? You end up spending a lot more time integrating, a lot more time, you know, discussing and stuff like that. And I think that's sort of a natural progression, is there anything that you want to talk about that we haven't talked about yet? Anything you're working on or that fascinates you at the moment? You know, one thing, like I said, uh, need more security people. If you're interested in security stuff, you can always talk to me. I'm always, you know, happy to talk about that stuff for ages. Um, you know, aside from, you know, sort of random happenstance, I, I sort of... So one thing I have been doing is that I hope to release soon is, uh, and I've been thinking about doing this, is talking about, um, you know, like I was saying earlier, hardware design for like people who do Haskell because I've been working on a small microprocessor in Clash. So uh, you know that, like I said, you know, because the the sort of hardware 
hardware thing, you know, the sort of um, all of the similarities between like sort of this lazy functional language and, you know, these hardware designs are sort of endlessly fascinating to me. Um, in terms of just, you know, general projects, you know, I mean, get out there and write code. If I had to give any advice to like just general Haskellers, you know, it would just be get out there and, you know, just write some code. I wouldn't worry about, you know, like I said, a whole bunch of, uh, you know, a whole bunch of like, you know, random stuff about like, you know, whether or not you're picking the right abstraction or anything. Just, we just need, you know, people to get out there and to be honest and just write code. That's one of, that's the main thing I want to see if anyone gets, you know, any kind of message for me out of this, I guess, you know. Our guest has been Austin Sight. Thanks, Austin, for joining us today. Thank you. I appreciate it, Chris. Alp. Our website is www.haskellcast.com. On it, you can find notes and links from today's episode, which we're recording on January 16th, 2017. 